The House now comes to questions for oral answer. The first in the name of the Honourable Carmel Cephaloni. Mr Speaker, to the Prime Minister, does he stand by all his government's actions and statements? Mr Speaker. Uh, the Honourable David Seymour. On behalf of the Prime Minister, yes, most definitely in the time and in the context that they were given. An example of that I'm sure we'll always stand for is this government's commitment in the speech for the, from the throne to establish a Ministry of Regulation and pass the Regulatory Standards Act. For too long, governments have neglected the impact of red tape and regulation on the Kiwi can-do attitude and people that want to get on with building a wealthier country. Well, now we've got a government that's going to do something about it. Mr Speaker, does he stand by his answers to oral questions yesterday? Quote, what I think is fantastic is we have an associate minister for dele uh, with dele delegation for reducing smoking. She's incredibly focused on that goal and she's asked her officials for a range of advice to actually lower smoking in New Zealand, end quote. If so, why? Uh, yes, we do, uh, because actually it is fantastic to have an associate minister committed to reducing smoking rates. It's fantastic to have a minister uh, who asks for a range of advice. I can't imagine the psychology of someone who doesn't want a minister who is A, committed to reducing smoking and B, interested in listening to advice. Mr Speaker, can he assure this House that no person affiliated with the to tobacco industry was involved in developing or writing the documents Casey Costello passed on to her officials. I've had, on behalf of the Prime Minister, I've had assurances uh, from all coalition partners in this government uh, that they have had no funding uh, from the tobacco industry and I am confident that there has been no undue influence on the policies of this government by the tobacco industry. What about the Honourable Mr Speaker, the answer was an interesting one, but the question was not about money or influence. It was about the documents that Casey Costello gave, and uh, the min min minister did not answer that question. OK, we'll have the question again and uh, see how we go. Can he assure this House that no person affiliated with the tobacco industry was involved in developing or writing the documents Casey Costello passed on to her officials. On behalf of the Prime Minister, I am confident that there has been no undue influence on in the policy formation of this government. No, with respect, uh, the preparation of a party document does not become the, the problem of the Prime Minister. If it's included in a, a coalition agreement, uh, then it's accepted at that point. Point of order. Point of order. Right, Robertson. Um, Mr Speaker, yesterday when this exact issue was raised, you took the position that once the Associate Minister handed that material on to officials, it became the responsibility of both the Minister and indeed the Prime Minister. That was the ruling you gave yesterday. That is the document that... That is that true. For the, hand, for the handling of it, that is true. Uh, but I think it would be quite unreasonable uh, for uh, anyone in a coalition situation to say, where did you get that paper from? Who provided it? And if I don't like who uh, gave you advice, then uh, uh, we're having nothing to do with it. It's not how it works. Order, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, um, I'd, I'd ask you to think very carefully about what you've just said, because 
once a minister, act, I mean, a minister only acts in giving things to officials as a minister. They can't do it in any other guise. And therefore, the material at that point becomes official material, and the matter of who prepared it becomes a matter for the minister and the prime minister. I understand the point you're making about individual party documents, and, that, and that's long-standing. But the moment a minister does something with them, it enters the realm of their responsibilities, in particular to this House. Uh, the Honourable Chris Bishop. I think this is a... F I understand where the shadow leader of the House or active shadow leader of the House is coming from. It's a, it's a finely balanced issue. The, 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 the problem is this. Ministers are clearly responsible for things they give to their officials. No one's disputing that. The issue is, are they responsible for the generation of that material? And I would argue, Mr Speaker, um, they, they cannot be in the same way that if, for example, a Labour Party minister gave a document to the Education Ministry uh, that was the NZEI or PPTA or the CTU, for example, they cannot be questioned about the CTU in Parliament. Um, they can be questioned about, they can be questioned about uh, the, the handing of that document uh, and what's in the document, but the generation of that document, I think, would fall without the outside the scope of ministerial responsibility. Well, speaking to that point of order, Mr Speaker, um, I think if one took that to its logical conclusion, that would be a very difficult thing to sustain. And I'm pretty sure in the time that I've been in the House, ministers have been questioned about materials that have been they have worked with others on. Uh, the bottom line here is this exact document yesterday was the subject of questioning, and I don't believe that the minister acting as the Prime Minister has addressed that question. And I think it would set a very unfortunate precedent if the House was not able to ask a minister or the Prime Minister about a document that they handed to officials and how it was generated. Uh, yes, but certainly. Carry on. Thank, uh, thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. Um, the, the response from the uh, acting Prime Minister was about undue influence, and that is, that is not the, the question. There is a question of transparency, however. So it is obviously quite common uh, for organisations to work with political parties to develop policy documents, uh, and then when those political parties are in a position uh, of government, uh, for them to provide those uh, to officials. Um, that, that, there's kind of technically nothing wrong with that. I mean, that, that's sort of been going on for, uh, for donkey's years. Um, it does become a problem if that is not transparent where, uh, you know, who those organisations are and, and what uh, is, is being provided to officials in, in an official capacity, in a ministerial capacity. That is what the question is about, is was uh, the tobacco industry involved in developing a document that the minister then gave to officials, at which point it became official material? That, that's just a matter of transparency. It's not a matter of undue influence. It's not a funding question or anything like that. But it is a matter of transparency about who is writing policy documents that are, are becoming part of the system of government in this country? The Port of Order? Mr Speaker, the, the, it's the, Thursday and we've got a long weekend ahead of us. The, the, the Prime Minister, it may be true in relation to other ministers, but the, the Prime Minister cannot be responsible for where every piece of paper handled by a minister came from. That, that, that just can't, that just cannot be the case. From a, from, a, from a knowledge point of view and from a prime ministerial accountability point of view. Speaking to point the point of order. Point of order. Point of order. <laughs> um, that, the statement 
haven't just made the inbound leader of the House can't possibly be true. And in the 15 years that I have been in the House, Prime Ministers are asked about the actions, every action of a Minister. It is, of course, perfectly possible for the Prime Minister to say that they don't know, because I agree with the Leader of the House. They may well not know all of the details of documents, but that is not the same as simply not answering or avoiding the question. Uh, it, um to quote uh, Mr Speaker, speaking to that very point that Mr Bishop raised and to quote from that very side when they were in opposition, the clue is in the name, Prime Minister, and that's where the responsibility has always laid. Um, thank you to members who have contributed to this. I'm going to reflect on this over the next uh, recess week and I'll come back with a ruling. Do you have another sup? And it, can, you can have an additional one as well, um, just to make sure that we're all being nice and fair. Cool. Um, has the Prime Minister asked Minister Costello uh, whether or not the tobacco industry informed the policy document or wrote the policy document she gave to health officials? Uh, on behalf of the Prime Minister, I, I can't answer in respect of that conversation at this time. Mr Speaker, is he confident that all of his ministers have declared all conflicts or potential conflicts of interest? Yes, and that question was about as effective as a Marama Davidson etymology lesson. <laughs> Mr Speaker, does he agree with David Seymour, quote, we can't sit around the table every day with somebody that, in the past at least, has had secret foundations where all of the donations go, doesn't declare them like any other political party would, and of course we don't know why that money was paid, by whom, for what purpose, end quote. If not, why not? Well, I'm a great, on behalf of the Prime Minister, I'm a, a great admirer of the wisdom that David Seymour brings to many matters. Um, and the other thing I would note is that, um, in spite of his prognostication, uh, this uh, coalition government is far more united and effective than the opposition's worst nightmare. In fact, we're your nightmare dressed up as a daydream. Mr Speaker. <laughs> Does he stand by his comment that, quote, well, I'm responsible for all ministers, irrespective of which party they've come from, end quote, and if so, when will he dismiss Casey Costello? Um, well, you know, the member has, has been in, in Cabinet, so uh, she'll be aware that the Prime Minister is responsible uh, for all ministers. In respect of uh, Casey Costello, I uh, full confidence uh, in her, and I'm sure that in time uh, that member will too. Thank you. We come now to question two. Question two. Question Mr. two Speaker. in the name of Catherine Webb. Yes. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Finance. Has she seen any recent reports on income growth in New Zealand? Honourable Nicola Willis. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I've seen a report showing that the median wage in 2010 was $40,000 and that now it has risen to $65,000. This means that someone earning the median wage back in 2010 was firmly in the 17.5% personal income tax bracket. And now they are firmly in the 30% tax bracket. 
tax bracket. Through neglect, the personal income tax scale has failed to keep up with growth in incomes. Mr Speaker, what tax bracket are minimum wage earners in? Well, Mr Speaker, that depends on how many hours they work, of course. But let me give you an example. A person working 40 hours a week on the minimum wage in 2010 was earning $27,000. After the increase in the minimum wage, a person working 40 hours a week on the minimum wage will now be earning more than $48,000 and therefore, like median income earners, will be in the 30% tax bracket. Again, through neglect, the personal income tax scale has failed to keep up with the growth in incomes. Mr Speaker, when was the last time New Zealanders saw any reduction in the personal income taxes they pay? Well, sadly, you have to go all the way back to 1 October 2010, when the National Government reduced personal income taxes after Budget 2010. That is 14 years ago. To be fair, personal income tax reductions were legislated for in 2017. However, the incoming Labor Government cancelled them and then introduced a new top tax rate of 39%. So, apart from the new top rate, Personal income tax rates and thresholds have remained exactly as they are since October 2010. Mr Speaker, has she seen any reports relating to personal income tax reductions? Yes, I have seen a report on reductions in personal income tax. This came from Australia, where the Labor government has just announced the third in a series of personal income tax reductions. I thought this was highly relevant for New Zealand as it shows that such reductions are commonplace and can be adopted by governments of all political stripes. Yes, Mr Speaker. Supplementary question. Camilla Village. How does the Minister justify the decision to raise the minimum wage today by less than the rate of inflation, effectively cutting the wages of thousands of low-paid workers in New Zealand? Well, well, I'd point out to the member that there are a number of projections for what inflation will be in the year ahead, and that in the last quarter at 0.5 per cent at an annualised rate of 2. A point of order, that, Dr Duncan Webb. That was a general opinion on inflation, but didn't touch at all on any of the justification for the minimum wage. But, uh, but the point is that the question relied on uh, an opinion about the inflation rate. That's right. Do you have another supplementary? Supplementary. Question. Oh, supplementary. Sorry. Uh, the Honourable David Seymour. Uh, can the Minister of Finance confirm uh, that wage growth comes from investment and entrepreneurship and productivity growth, allowing employers to pay their workers more, and that legislating up the wage from Wellington is not the only or the best way uh, for Kiwis to get ahead. In fact, for the 97.1 per cent of workers who are not on the minimum wage, that's the only way for them to get ahead. Uh. Yes, I am delighted to be in a coalition government that is committed to growing this economy so that we can have higher incomes and higher living standards for all New Zealanders. Supplementary, Honourable Grant Robertson. Uh, what measure of inflation was used in the advice given to the government 
when setting the minimum wage. Uh, we received uh, a number of pieces of advice uh, in relation to the minimum wage and uh, that advice included different measures for inflation uh, depending on the depending on the time periods well, that were being looked at. Of course, the CPI is viewed as the standard measure of inflation, Mr Speaker, but the period at which you look at to determine the inflation rate uh, is something that there can be a number of perspectives on. Question, question number three, Honourable Marama Davidson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Prime Minister, does he stand by his statement that, quote, my focus in government is upon fixing the bad outcomes of colonisation and building on the good ones. On behalf of the Minister, uh, yes. And I note my wider quote where I said, quote, people can argue about history and that's appropriate. Everybody will have a different point of view. I certainly have no doubt there were many bad things that have happened as a result of colonisation. And what I'm focused on is improving them and restoring them, and that's the focus of our government. What specifically are the, quote, good outcomes of colonisation that he is planning to build on? Um, unlike that member, I don't view history in a binary way. History is complicated. Colonisation brought to New Zealand uh, things like Westminster democracy, the rule of law, economic, economic development. It, it also... How can it be mansplaining to answer a question from a woman in Parliament? Seriously, like, ridiculous. <laughs> um, on the other hand, Mr Speaker, on the other hand, colonisation brought immense suffering for many people. It brought, it brought uh, the loss of land for Tangata Whenua. Uh, it brought disease and it brought illness. Uh, and of course, we are all engaged in a national effort to remedy and right the wrongs of the past, and that's what this government is committed to. How does cutting the budget of the Waitangi Tribunal, which has exclusive authority to determine the meaning and effect of Te Tiriti o Waitangi, contribute to, quote, fixing the bad outcomes of colonisation? Well, all, all government agencies, uh, Mr Speaker, are being asked to make savings. Uh, the member will be aware of the coalition government commitment um, around um, uh, looking at the scope, purpose and the nature of the inquiries of the Waitangi Tribunal. That work uh, has yet to begin, uh, but it will begin in due course. Is he concerned that cutting the funding of the Waitangi Tribunal to pay for tax cuts will affect its ability to scrutinise the government's proposed Treaty Principles Bill? Uh, no, and I reject the characterisation uh, of the member's um, explanation. Thanks, Mr Speaker. Does he think the treaty principles of partnership and participation as developed by the courts remain relevant to, quote, fixing the bad outcomes for Māori in areas such as justice, health and education? Yes. Has he met with representatives from Iwi and Hapu since becoming Minister, and if so, have they raised with him any concerns about the Government's approach to Te Tiriti? Uh, on, on behalf of the Minister, I'm not able to uh, comment on that, because uh, I don't have visibility over the Minister's diary uh, and what happened in those meetings. I'm sorry. 
Question number four, and then over the Honourable Grant Robertson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Minister of Finance, does she stand by the statement in the National Party and ACT Party Coalition Agreement, quote, the concepts of ACT's income tax policy are considered as a pathway to delivering National's promised tax relief subject to no earner being worse off than they would be under National's plan? Mr Speaker, I can confirm to the member that that is indeed the wording in the coalition agreement and the government is delivering on that commitment. Supplementary question, will the minister rule out cutting the top tax rate from 39 cents to income tax rate from 39 cents to 33 cents in this term of government? I've already done so. Supplementary question, how then can the ACT parties uh, uh, system of taxation be uh, being considered by the Minister when a core plank of it she's just ruled out? Well, uh, Mr Speaker, there are many aspects to the proposals that Mr Seymour and I uh, are discussing along with other Ministers in the Cabinet. I have to say I'm delighted to see the newfound interest from the opposition member in the necessity to reduce taxation. If only he had taken one of the six opportunities he had to do so. Well, that's enough. Is that it? Question number five. Question number five in the name of Sam Uppendahl. What recent announcements has he made to improve the safety and security to, to of our health workforce? You, you need to read to the Minister of Health. Oh. You read it again. The question is to the Minister of Health. Yep. What recent announcements has he made to improve the safety and security of our health workforce? Honourable Shane Reddy. Mr Speaker, our health workforce is the backbone of our health system and we will support them. That is why we increased the number of security staff in emergency departments by an additional 200 staff across 32 EDs over the Christmas and New Year period. Supplementary. What feedback has he received about this important uplift in security? Mr Speaker, I have visited a number of hospitals across the country and heard firsthand from staff and patients how beneficial this program has been. I am told that there has been a noticeable reduction in the number of people who have been abusive towards staff. This has improved due to the increased presence of security in our EDs and has ensured people feel safer when they access care in their times of need. Supplementary. Why was this such a priority for the government? Mr Speaker, just last week, guards that were provided through our ED security boost helped to swiftly remedy a fight in Christchurch Hospital's emergency department between gang members. That is why this program was such a priority for the government. The safety of our health workforce and patients is, and always will be, a top priority. We must say no to violence in our EDs. Supplementary. What are the next steps for security in emergency departments? Mr Speaker, this program addressed an urgent immediate need over the busy summer period. We will be assessing the impact that it has had and look for ways to improve safety long term. Ideally, we would not and should not require security in our EDs. This government is committed to law and order and making our streets safer for everyone, including our EDs. Question number six, the name of Takatai Kesh. Uh, Mr Speaker, to the Minister for Children, does she stand by all of her statements and policies? Mr Speaker. Uh, the Honourable Karen Shaw. Yes. Supplementary, Hana. Ravriti Maipi Clark. Kia ora. 
What is she doing to ensure the safety of Tamariki and stake here in response to the report by Oranga Tamariki, which has shown that more children than ever are being harmed under her watch? Mr Speaker, I acknowledge that the reports do not reflect well on Oranga Tamariki or the previous Minister for Children. But while there have been some improvements, there are many areas that have been highlighted that are an issue. I am dedicated to making real change in this area, and some of that space is around making sure caregivers have the right support wrapped around them to take care of our most vulnerable, and making sure that we are making sure that the best interests of our young people are the first and foremost in decision-making when it comes to our young people. Supplementary, Mr Speaker. How can she justify cutting 600 staff at Oranga Tamariki when understaffing is a major factor in the increased rates of harm we are seeing under her watch? Mr Speaker, no commitments have been made in, in what's going to happen in staffing levels. Um, those decisions are still ongoing and those discussions are still ongoing. Uh, supplementary. Uh, Mr Tau, Speaker. How can she justify removing Section 7AA from the Oranga Tamariki Act when rates of abuse for Tamariki Māori in the Crown's care has almost doubled in the last five years? I will count you. Mr Speaker, repealing Section 7AA is something that I have campaigned on for the last three years. We need to make sure that the best interests are the first and foremost in every decision making we are making around our children. And those reports are showing that a lot of that harm is when children are being placed back into family care. We need to make sure that we are creating the best wraparound services possible so that these young people have a chance in life to not just survive but thrive. Supplementary. Will the Minister accept responsibility for any further increases in rates of abuse of tamariki Māori in state care as a result of her policies, including removing Section 7AA from the Oranga Tamariki Act? I take this role very serious and every report of harm of a child is disappointing. My focus is to make sure that every child, Māori or non-Māori, are safe loved and cared for. Question number seven, in the name of uh, Dr O'Shaville. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Associate Minister of Health and asks, does she stand by all her statements and actions? Mr Speaker. Yes, in particular what I said in the answering the member's question in the House yesterday when I said, when I received this delegation, I provided a range of information to officials, including things like Hansard and previous policy proposals around smoke-free and vaping to help guide conversations. The health paper came back setting out a number of areas to provide advice on, and I marked that I wanted advice on each of them. That health briefing refers to proposals and notes I want to be clear, they were not my proposals or notes. They were not things I had written. This was general information I had provided officials, and I'm sure they can verify this. Why did she tell Radio New Zealand, I haven't looked at a freeze on the excise duty at all, when the notes she gave to officials said, freeze the excise duty, excise rates on smoked tobacco for three years, starting 31 December 2023. 
Mr Speaker, it is unfortunate the actions have been distorted by a media article. The fact is I was asked a question about whether I had sought specific advice. I had not sought specific advice, which is the question I answered, and I referred to a range of advice I had sought from officials. How does she her explain her statement to RNZ that I had not sought that advice at all when she had requested it through the documents she provided to the Ministry of Health? Mr Speaker, as I said, I stated I had not sought specific advice on the excise tax. Who wrote or collated the notes that said the freeze, uh, freeze the excise rates on smoked tobacco that she gave to health officials? Mr Speaker, the documentation is a range of historical policy position and notes that were held in New Zealand First policy positions. Some of it relates to things that were passed in the legislation when New Zealand First was in government. Um, this is a range of points and positions and it's about five pages long. Point of order, Dr Duncan Webb. There was a very specific question about a very particular document and it wasn't answered because it was asked what the authorship of that document was. To say that it is, uh, there's a series of documents from New Zealand First Policy Library doesn't come close to an answer. Speak, speak with the point of order. Uh, speak with the point of order. The, 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 the Minister answered it in extensive detail. She said it's about a five-page document long, long based on historical New Zealand First Party positions from a range of different sources, including um, the, the past. The, 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 the minister actually gave far more information, frankly, than I think she is required to uh, as a minister in the interests of illuminating the public debate on this issue. How is it? It's, uh, the question cannot have been credibly answered because how could a historical document address, uh, contain a policy proposal for December 2023? Well, uh, with all due respect, that wasn't necessarily the case, not the, the answer that was given. But I will ask the Minister to have another crack at answering it, if that's OK. Mr Speaker, the pages of notes that were provided to the officials were a compilation of information that was extracted. The authors, I'm not sure of, they are historical policy positions. Thank you. Who wrote the note that asked for excise, uh, that said freeze the excise tax on smoked tobacco that she gave to, in 2023 that she gave to officials? Mr Speaker, I couldn't tell you the author of that document. It's in the document archives. Do things in her office just appear out of thin air? <laughs> Is that a question? It's not a reasonable question. <laughs> Supplementary, how can the public trust her to take action on youth vaping when she is secretly sending notes to officials that nicotine isn't harmful? No, hang on. No, that's not, that's not an acceptable question either. Because you cannot make an allegation that notes that were sent to officials that the member asking the question knows about were secret. Mr Speaker, how can the public trust her to take action on youth vaping when she is sending notes to officials saying that nicotine isn't harmful? Mr Speaker, as I've stated in the policy positions that we have taken, I'm seeking a broad range of advice, including how we deter... 
including how we deter youth from vaping and taking up, and also how we give the tools to those who are addicted to nicotine to quit smoking. Did she deny seeking advice on a tobacco excise tax freeze when asked by Radio New Zealand, despite having actually sought that advice, because she did not want to be questioned on her plans to give tax breaks to the tobacco industry? No. Come now to question number eight in the name of Mike Buttrick. <clears throat> My question is to the Minister for Emergency Management and Recovery. What recent announcements has he made on flood resilience? Thank you, Mr Speaker. Firstly, can I acknowledge the recent one-year anniversary of the Auckland floods on Auckland Anniversary Weekend, as well as the lives lost during that significant weather event. Um, those included two of our firefighters. I'm pleased to share with the House that I've recently announced $26.8 million of funding for flood resilience projects across the country, of which $12.3 billion has been for flood risk mitigation across 13 projects and $14.5 million for future of severely affected land category 2 support across four projects. This funding has gone to projects in Northland, Waikato, Manawatu Whanganui, Wairapa, Bay of Plenty and the Coromandel. The Government remains focused on delivering high-quality investment for flood resilience for, to better protect communities. Supplementary. What projects has he announced funding for in the Wairarapa? Oh, Good news for the members electorate. The Government has funded the Flat Point Flood Resilience Project, early flood warning systems in the eastern Wairarapa, sewer resilience and flood relocation support in Masterton, and water protection in Riversdale. These projects will ensure that his electorate has a greater resilience to flooding in prone areas, ensuring that homes in Flat Point enjoy greater protection from flood events, communities receive better warning of flooding, sewers in Masterton are protected from inflows during heavy rainfall events, and homes in Riversdale are provided greater protection from erosion. Miles Anderson. My colleague, the member for Northland, is interested to know what projects has he announced funding for in Northland? More great news. Flood relief in Morningside, Whangarei, the clearing of the Awakino River mouth, installation of a box culvert to increase the size of Beach Road culvert in Whangarei, and the upgrade of the Murphy Boa stop bank on the Wairo River to protect the Rawai community. The member can be assured that his community has received relief to address an urgent need to make the smaller rural communities he knows well across the electorate more resilient and better prepared for weather events. Great Sam Uffendahl. What announcements has he made around future of severely affected land category 2 support for Tauranga? Well, more great news for the member. As the member will be familiar, two landslips took place during the Auckland anniversary flooding on Egret Avenue and Tamutu Crescent in Tauranga. I am pleased to have announced $7.3 million to provide a long-term, permanent remediation solution for his community. Uh, Tim Van der Bollen. What announcements has he made for the Waikato? <laughs> I have announced funding for several projects in the Waikato. Funding for the Waihau Rivers Network Recovery to remove storm-affected vegetation and the planting of new willow and poplar poles 
alongside erosion protection works to stabilise riverbanks. Removal of waterway obstructions and the construction of at least 85 in-stream erosion control structures to mitigate future flood risk in vulnerable areas of the Waikato, Waipa and West Coast catchments. Resilience work for the Lake Hakanoa Channel to prevent floodwater entering homes in Huntley, vital to maintaining water levels and prevent further environmental degradation. And storm damage tree removal in the Coromandel. In addition, I have announced $1.3 million for slip stabilisation in Thornton Bay on the west coast of the Coromandel and $1.1 million for support for homeowners across the Waikato to mitigate risks associated with future landslides. Come now to question number nine in the name of the Honourable Jenny Anderson. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Police and reads, is it the government's policy to train no fewer than 500 new frontline police within two years, as per the National and New Zealand First Coalition Agreement? Yes, the government will deliver 500 net more police on the beat in two years. Given the Minister's renewed commitment to the National and New Zealand First Coalition Agreement of 500 new police within two years, when did he first become aware that police's current recruitment practices would not enable police to achieve any desired growth without other interventions? Well, as I've said many times in this House, I became aware as the incoming minister that police faced major challenges uh, around recruiting due to the fact that the Australians are here recruiting our police officers. Um, it was, we were, they were finding it difficult to fill recruit wings. And we've got many police officers that are fast approaching retirement age. When did he first inform the Prime Minister's office that police's current recruitment practices would not enable police to achieve any desired gro growth without other interventions? Well, I had several conversations when I became aware um, of the situation around um, recruiting with um, several of my colleagues. What specific interventions is he considering in order to meet his renewed commitment to the 500 new police in two years, and will he rule out lowering current recruitment standards one of, as one of them? Well, I think we're going to. I was recently at the Gisborne um, Police Station, and there was a young constable there that had been put in charge of mentoring and identifying young people in the community that may be interested in a career in police. He has been very successful at the. Um, latest recruit wing. Uh, I think there was four that have been recruited through that process um, and we're proudly graduating. So I think we're just going to have to look at uh, many different options in terms of um, how we meet our target of 500 over two years. Point of order, Mr Speaker. That was a question that asked, uh, is he going to lower the standards? And he gave me a story about a visit in Gisborne. Um, uh, have another go at answering this. Will the 500 new police all be constabulary or does it include authorised officers? No. Unlike the previous government who deceived New Zealand by saying that they had recruited 1,800 uh, frontline police officers when in fact they hadn't, it was 1,500, uh, we will be recruiting, training and deploying 500 sworn police officers. Just and in, to, in relation to standards, no, we will not be dropping standards. Just to remind the Minister answer the question that choice of language is not appropriate there. Um, all, all political positions will be put from a position considered honest by the person putting it. How someone else sees it is a different matter, but not for this House. Question number 10, in the name of the Honourable Julianne Genta. 
Tanakwe, Mr. Speaker. Tanakote Tefare. My question is to the Minister of Transport. Does he consider the proposed road user charges for electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids fair compared with road user charges and fuel excise duty for similarly sized vehicles? And if so, why? Honourable Simeon Brown. Mr Speaker, yes, and the government has announced that uh, electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids will contribute towards the maintenance of our roads as other vehicles do, and the changes pro proposed for electric vehicles will ensure that they pay the same amount as a road user charge as those other light vehicles which pay a road user charge. There are variances throughout the system, and that is why the coalition agreement with ACT commits this government to progress a fleet-wide transition to road user charges that will result in a much fairer charging system based on how much people travel the roads and the weight of their vehicle. How is it fair that the average electric vehicle or plug-in hybrid owner would pay more than double the tax of a similarly sized petrol vehicle for a return trip from Wellington to Auckland? Well, Mr Speaker, there are variances throughout the system, as I acknowledged, and that is why the coalition government has agreed to progress a fleet-wide transition to road user charges that will result in a much fairer charging system. This was an issue that was not addressed under the last government, and this is the first step towards ensuring that all vehicles who use the road pay towards contributing towards maintaining it. Therefore, I can confirm that the minister acknowledges that an electric vehicle or plug-in hybrid, as shown here, would pay more than twice as much in road tax under his proposal on a trip from Wellington to Auckland. Well, Mr Speaker, there's a range of uh, variables around how much based on the fuel usage. And the problem with the current system is that it, it, it charges people based on how many litres of fuel they put into their car rather than how much they use the road. We want to move to a system which charges based on how many kilometres and the weight of that vehicle rather than what type of fuel motors that vehicle. That is the reform that we are progressing. So, so his government is happy to financially disincentivize electric vehicles and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles relative to polluting fossil fuel vehicles in the interim while we wait for his alternative road user charges proposal? No, this government is, uh, is, is confirmed that the exemption which would run out on the 1st of April uh, this year, <laughs> which was actually, by the way, put in place by the last national government to help incentivise EV uptake, uh, will end now that we have 2% of the fleet is electric. And what we are saying is all users of our road should pay towards contribute and contribute towards maintaining it. Is he concerned about the combined disincentive effect of charging EVs more tax, given the Ministry of Transport's advice that scrapping the clean car discount means transport may fail to meet its third emissions budget? Uh, no, and the issue that the member continues to raise is she's just simply looking at how much tax is paid based on the number of litres or the type of fuel used. We want to move to it being a distance and weight change, and that member's graph that she continues to raise doesn't take into account the full running costs of those vehicles. And as everyone knows, electric vehicles are far cheaper to use and drive, as many members of this House know, 
Uh, but that graph that she uses misinforms the House. Uh, point of order. Um, the member uh, just uh, made... Uh, 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 point of order. A uh, point of order. Thank you. Um, the minister just made um, a comment regarding uh, my colleague mis misinforming the House, effectively accusing her of lying. No, he said... Firstly, if a point of order is being taken, the House is silent and listens to it. Uh, what he said is that the graphic misinformed the House. Quite a different matter. We move now to... Oh, sorry, supplementary. Supplementary. Um, is the minister aware that the running charges for efficient petrol vehicles would also be lower, therefore their contribution to tax is lower than less efficient vehicles, and therefore he's, uh, what is the logical connection between cars paying, having lower running costs and contributing less to the roads on a per kilometre basis? Well, Mr Speaker, I really enjoy the uh, co-leadership bid from the member opposite. And if she would like to um, table a, one, a, a copy of that document, I'd be very happy to have a read. A point of order, Julianne Ginger. It would be great if the minister would attempt to address the question. It would, it would also be great if questions were asked. With all due respect, uh, if you have a look at your hands, uh, several of your questions have started as a statement. So I, I think the interchange here has been one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Uh, you can feel free to ask your question again. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Is the Minister aware that vehicles that run on petrol that have lower running costs would also contribute less to the roads on a per kilometre basis and therefore on what basis is he saying that EVs have lower running costs and therefore should pay more to run on the roads when that's not the case for petrol vehicles? As I've said to the House a number of times, there are variances throughout the system and that is why we have started work to move all vehicles to the road user charger system so people pay based on distance travelled and vehicle weight rather than the type of fuel that is used. We think that is a far fairer way to charge, and that is where we are heading. Just, point of order? Yeah. Yep. Just at the earliest opportunity that I was able to bring it up. But um, my understanding was speaking rulings uh, 20551, um, that ministers should not commence an answer to a question with a political attack on the person asking the question. And there were incidents where that was the case. So I'm just asking the, minister, uh, the speaker to just reflect on the fact that um, we've got ministers starting those answers with political attacks, not well, addressing I, the question. I didn't pick it up that way. If, if there's been, uh, that, that's the way the uh, members' party has seen it. I'll take a look at that and come back to you. Could we now go to question 11 in the name of the Honourable Jan Tanetti. Mr Speaker, to the Minister of Education, does she stand by all her statements and actions? Uh, Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister of Education, uh, yes. Uh, in fact, how long uh, do you have? Um, a personal favourite um, is uh, my commitment to reintroducing Parliament. Uh, partnership schools uh, under this government, a policy that was unceremoniously dumped uh, by the previous government and yet has the potential to make an enormous difference uh, for disadvantaged students up and down this country. Uh, 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 the Honourable Thank you, Mr Speaker. 
What does the government's commitment to restore balance to the Aotearoa New Zealand's histories curriculum actually mean? Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister, uh, this government is a coalition of three parties and the coalition uh, agreement set out that restoring balance is exactly uh, what the government is committed to doing with the Aotearoa Histories curriculum. Uh, the way that that will be done is set to come before Cabinet in the future. And once those policy, uh, policy decisions uh, have been made, I'm sure the member will be the first to know. Mentry. Uh, Does the Minister stand by her statement that the Ministerial Advisory Group reviewing primary school English maths and statistics curricula are subject matter experts who will ensure that our curriculum is knowledge rich, detailed, grounded in the science of learning and internationally comparable? Uh, yes. Oh, that's right. That, that's right. We won the election. <laughs> Uh, on behalf of on behalf of the minister, yes. <laughs> Does she think ministerial group member Professor Elizabeth Rata's statement nearly 40 years ago, the 1985 Treaty of Waitangi Amendment Act set in motion a radical constitutional agenda, the aim to shift the country from democracy to tribalism? In the same time, a corporate tribal elite has privatised public resources, acquired political power and attained governance entitlements. Is knowledge rich? And if not, why not? Um, supplementary. Oh, sorry. I keep stop, stop doing that. <laughs> on, on, behalf of, on, behalf of the, on behalf of the Minister, um, I, I've appointed uh, Professor Elizabeth Rata because she is a well-recognised and renowned educational expert. Uh, any views that she has expressed in terms of her political views are not relevant to her appointment, which is based on her educational expertise. And it would be a strange thing for the Labour Party to reveal that they actually profile people for their political views before appointing them on the basis of their expertise to get the job done and get a better curriculum for New Zealand's kids. <laughs> Question number 12. Nancy Liu. Question to the Minister of Commerce and Consumer Affairs. What proposals has he made to streamline and simplify the conduct requirements for financial institutions in New Zealand? Honourable Andrew Bailey. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Yesterday I announced at the uh, Financial Services Council meeting uh, my intention to simplify regulations, cut red tape and reduce costs to financial institutions. There are three elements. First for the proposal to move from three to two regulators. Secondly, to reduce uh, from a maximum of six licenses to uh, a single license. Thirdly, to reform the COFI requirements to make it easier for smaller financial institutions to meet their obligations. We are committed to reducing compliance from regulation where appropriate and getting the economy back on track. Supplementary. How will clearly defining the roles of the two regulators assist financial institutions? Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. Currently, some institutions are accountable to up to three 
regulators. What I announced yesterday is a move to just two regulators. First of all, being a prudential regulator, who is of course the Reserve Bank, but more importantly, moving to a single uh, conduct regulator, being the FMA or Financial Markets Authority. By making this change, financial institutions will have clearer lines of responsibility, which means they can focus on running their businesses more effectively. Supplementary. The Honourable Dr Duncan Webb. Oh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, what initiatives has he announced in respect of the Credit Contracts and Consumer Finance Act, and how does that differ one little bit from the announcement of the last Minister on 8 August 2023? Uh, Mr Speaker, I announced yesterday that we are looking into uh, the Credit Contracts uh, Act uh, because our intent is to improve the regulation which the previous government has made an absolute uh, hash, of, hash of. And so what we are intending to do, Mr Speaker, is to make sure that vulnerable borrowers are still protected, but just as importantly, by making sure that credit is available to those who need it but have been excluded under the current regulations. Supplementary. Nancy Lou. Mr Speaker, what are the benefits of moving to a single licensed regime for, of conduct? Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, currently some institutions have to apply up to or hold five uh, licences with the FMA and with the new Conduct of Financial Institution or COFI regulations uh, or bill, <laughs> Uh, that requires an additional licence. What we're proposing to do is to move to a single licence issued by the FMA or Financial Markets Authority, which means less duplication, reduces the operational burden for institutions without compromising conduct requirements. Back on track. Supplementary. How will this government make it easier for smaller financial institutions to meet their CFI obligation? Uh, Mr Speaker, um, as I announced yesterday, I'm requesting the, the FMA uh, issue clear guidance on the minimum requirements uh, necessary for small institutions to meet their obligations under COFI regulations and uh, legislation. This will allow these smaller uh, institutions to develop a more tailored approach, ensuring obligations are both proportionate and fit for purpose while uh, uh, balancing the importance of fair treatment for customers. That concludes uh, questions for oral answer.